right, good day, Christian Israel, Pastor Eli James here. And today on Voice of Christian Israel, January 7, 2024, I'm going to be talking about Genesis 3.15 and do a really detailed word study proving the two seed line doctrine from Genesis 3, 4, actually from Genesis 2, 3, 4, and 5. There's absolutely no doubt about it that Eve was sexually seduced. The language clearly says so because, number one, uh, if, if, the, if it was only a mental sin, as uh, Ted Weiland asserts, then uh, he, <laughs> Adam and Eve would have got dunce caps and their wombs wouldn't have been cursed, etc., etc. So, I mean, there's a real disconnect in the logic of the non-seed liners in Genesis chapter 3. A total disconnect. Plus, and I will get to this in greater detail, the, the tree of the fruit of good and evil cannot possibly be a literal fruit because there is no fruit that you can eat that will give you the knowledge of good and evil. As I have been arguing in the past, that word eat, uh, akal in the Hebrew, should have been translated as partake of, to partake of, which is a much broader term. And we know as well that the tree language of Scripture is very, it's just as often language about our genetic tree, our genetic tree as Israel and Adam kind, as it is about wood and uh, literal trees. And of course, the genetics of the Bible is kind after kind, like we guess like. And so the tree of life is our genetic code. That's what it is. It's our genetic code. Okay, I just want to make a quick comment on the excellent study that uh, Brother Rob Hebert, as he spell, uh, pronounces it, but I pronounce it in the French, Hebert. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, to the extent that Revelation 20 may have been mistranslated or verses added, and that's a really good uh, uh, you know, art, uh, I mean, uh, assignment, that, that, uh, and a difficult one, because word studies, and of course, we've been talking a lot about how the Masoretic text has been perverted by the Masoretes, okay, although that's only doing with the Old Testament Nevertheless, the Judeo-Christians have perverted the New Testament, so, and uh, they have made subtle changes here and there. However, I still hold out uh, for the prospect of a pre-millennial reign, or actually uh, the, the, the time in which the uh, Satan, that is, and the beast, and the false prophet were held in check. But actually, during that thousand years, from 800 A.D. to oh, 1000 A.D., when uh, between Charlemagne and Napoleon, the Jewish beast system of global usury uh, and lending money to kings and queens and nations was put in check, and that's what I believe Paul was talking about when the, the great restrainer who restrains evil on the world that's the that's the only you know valid consideration I think for a thousand years uh, of uh, being imprisoned and then finally being let loose. Although there is you know there may be other interpretations that have some validity. That's the one that really stands out to me, and that put uh, Satan's children 
in subjection to the Holy Roman Empire, and they were unable to lend to nations until Napoleon released them during uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Okay, and he, he actually called uh, together a Jewish Sanhedrin, which was a huge mistake on his part. He was hoping to universalize the Jewish religion, but of course the, the Jews maintained their separateness, not as Israel, but as the children of the devil, right? Satan's progeny. And so I still think that that thousand years pre, pre-judgment, pre-resurrection has validity. And But I haven't had a chance to do the word studies and uh, you know, which Bible includes those verses and which Bibles don't. However, there is no doubt that, let me just go to Revelation chapter 19, Actually, I don't even have to go there. The fact is that the beast and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire. Nobody gets out of the lake of fire. And then Satan was cast in there shortly after, not a thousand years later, okay? There's just, if there's any insertions, it would be in there from Revelation 20 to uh, verse 8. So, nevertheless... There's no coming out of the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, lake of fire. There's no coming out of the lake of fire. So there's no possibility of a millennial reign after the beast and false prophet, the beast being the Jewish world order, the banking hegemony, and the false prophet being all false versions of Christianity, which we today call Judeo-Christianity, all those Christians who believe that the Jews are the Israelites of the Bible. There's no possibility that those two entities will ever come out of the lake of fire. And so, even if the the interpretation is correct, and I know a lot of Christians hold this, that after a thousand years, uh, Satan will come back, but he will not, not have anything to rule over. His shock troops, namely the bankers and the Jewish people themselves, will have long since gone. You'd think Joshua Messiah would have, after reigning a thousand years, okay, I'm just taking their their perspective, after reigning a thousand years, would not warn us that the Jews are coming back? No, it ain't happening, folks. There's no doubt that that, the post-millennial reign, is absolute rubbish. Not possible. Absolutely not possible. Pre-millennial, yes. Okay, and I'll deal with that at a future time. Uh, I'm working on several documents uh, right now, in fact, uh, that's what I'm going to be quoting from today. And this is, hold on, let me get in the chat room. I neglected to get into the chat room before starting. And uh, I was uh, tuned in to Brother Abear's uh, podcast uh, very intensely, so I forgot to sign sign into the chat room. So here we go. All right. So we're going to discuss the serpent seed line of Cain, which I have in outline form. A lot of my prisoners on my prison ministry list have been almost demanding that I issue part seventy, part seven rather, of the Enmity series, which I have promised them for several years and have failed to deliver. But I have been doing intensive research on the serpent seed line of Cain word study, a very intensive word study. I did an intensive word study on Genesis 1 and 2 and Beast of the Field which proved conclusively that only the Adamic species is being talked about in the Bible. The other races 
are only mentioned tangentially. However, the seed line of Cain is also stressed very heavily. And there's no way the seed line of Cain can be the seed line of Adam and Seth. Absolutely no way. Okay. So that's what I want to stress today and get into the details of this. So let me uh, let me go to Genesis chapter 3 in my Esword. So I have the exact verses. And of course, as we've been saying, a lot of this language has been distorted in the Masoretic text and Esword and your King James and virtually every modern translation of the Old Testament with the exception of the Septuagint, <clears throat> is based on the Masoretic text. That includes the King James. So as we've been documenting on bloodlines for the last three episodes, there are intensive, really incredibly horrible translations, deletions and additions, which is, of course is a violation of Deuteronomy 4.2 in the Old Testament of the King James Version and many other versions, okay? Because they do not take into account the fact that the Masoretic text is Jewish in origin and not Christian or Judahite or Israelite. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. So, Genesis 1. I'm sorry. uh, Genesis 3, verse 1. Let me just read it. Now, the serpent, of course, this is not a literal snake. A lot of non-seed liners accuse us of believing in the literal snake. If, if anything, all others besides those of us in two seed line believe that Nakash was a literal snake. We don't believe any such thing. That Nakash was, in fact, a fallen angel and or a humanoid. doesn't really matter which. The fact is this other humanoid, and of course the fallen angel in human form is still a humanoid, created Cain. And Eve had a dual pregnancy. Okay. Now, it's telling us that this serpent, this Nachash, was more subtle, more cunning. Let me look at the word subtle here. A room that is cunning, crafty, prudent, but not prudent in a good sense. Or uh, Let's say, well, the Jew carefully chooses its words, okay? Very carefully chooses its words. In that sense, it is prudent. And subtle. What's what's a subtle creature? One that practices deception. (laughs) Crafty, prudent, subtle, cunning. It says, usually in a bad sense. Well, certainly it is a bad sense here in Genesis 3.1. So that this serpent, this Nahash, was more cunning and crafty than any beast of the field. And of course, we have talked about the word beast extensively on other shows. And it simply means alive, living, a breathing, living, breathing creature. And it does not necessarily mean anything other than that. So, but what's the field? The field is Sade, which country, field, ground, land, soil, etc. But in other concordances says it is an enclosed field, which means it is tended to by probably Adamites. Okay? or any enclosed field, it can't have a fence around it, may not have a fence around it, depending on what's being grown there, whether it's pasture land, you got to put a fence around pasture land, otherwise the cows will escape or be pilfered much more easily. Wheat and barley and oats are not necessarily need, need to be 
surrounded w with a fence, okay? Because it's really how you, it's, it's a lot of trouble to harvest. <laughs> and if some uh, some poachers come to try to harvest your wheat field, uh, you'll definitely notice that, right? You might have a scythe war on your hand if you try to stop them. Okay, when people get hungry, they do bad things, okay? So, beast of the field, sade, which is actually a cultivated field, which Yahweh Elohim had made. And he, this is the serpent. Now, nobody in Two Seed Line would seriously say that this is a talking snake. A lot of Judeos believe that it was a talking snake. But no, serpent here is a metaphor. The, the translation, the word serpent, uh, I would have left it untranslated. I would simply say Nachash. And now Nachash was more subtle than any beast or a living creature of the field. Okay? And uh, who was it? Nord Davis Jr. <clears throat> made an excellent observation on this point saying that you do not leave a cultivated field in the hands of four-legged beasts, okay? You do not leave such a field in the hands of four-legged beasts. They will trample it and destroy it and or eat it all up, okay? So it can only be a two-legged beast, which may have been uh, an Adamite from Genesis chapter 1, where our people were already fruitful and multiplying. Or it could be another race that was helping Adam. But I'm pretty much convinced that it is actually Adamites or a combination of the above. Okay? Because we, only Adam, was given subjection, dominance, dominion over planet Earth. No other race was given that. Only the Adamites were given that. Okay? which is something the, the non-seed liners fail, fail to address, okay, which Yahweh Elohim had made. So all these creatures which Yahweh Elohim had made, including the angels that fell, right? And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath, hath Elohim said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And, and the woman said, unto Nahash, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now here we're talking a cow being a, a literal eating. Literal eating, okay? Because th this type of fruit does not give us the knowledge of good and evil, which is a completely different category of fruit. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, Elohim has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. Now, Genesis 2.7, uh, and, and the portions of this <coughs> dialogue in Genesis 2.7 <coughs> do not address the issue of touching. But this is what Eve says. So she is relating to Nachash what Yahweh said to her. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, the vast majority of fruit that you can eat and touch, like you have to touch an apple if you pluck it off a tree, you have to touch an orange when you pluck it off the tree, you have to touch raspberries and blackberries and, and grapefruit in order to eat them. This is not true of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. 
So there's tremendous difference between these two different types of fruit. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is a, a completely different category. So, fruit is parif, offspring. Doesn't necessarily. So, here she's talking about fruit of literal trees, but the word fruit can mean offspring, children, progeny of the womb. This is from the concordances, folks. Uh, examples are Genesis 32, Deuteronomy 7:13. Nine times compare Lamentations 2:20, Psalm 21:11. Of cattle, it's also spoken of 28:4. So the word fruit is not limited explicitly to what we would call fruit that you pluck off a tree or a branch, etc. The word simply is not limited to that. Okay. So, and, and that type of fruit you have to touch in order to eat it, in order to pluck it, in order to harvest it, uh, and uh, you know, grind it into grain, if you're talking about grains. Those things have to be touched in order to be consumed. No doubt about it. But then the serpent uh, that is Nachash said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So this is the very first lie recorded in Scripture because... Well, they did die. It took them quite a while to die, nearly a thousand years, but they did die. So this is the first lie recorded in Scripture. And, of course, we know the, the offspring of Cain, who was the child of the serpent, are liars. All right, so here's the first lie. And Cain is described in Scripture as the first liar and the first murderer. Okay, but actually this Nachash critter was actually the first liar because he had a discussion with Eve. Now, I don't think there has ever been a literal talking snake. There's been talking donkeys and uh, other creatures. Uh, but what the, the text tells us, well, this, this creature did talk to Balaam. The donkey talked to Balaam. And the, the scripture says, yeah, this donkey talked to Balaam. All right. And, but the serpent here is not a literal snake. And even most non-seed liners will agree it's not a literal snake. Okay, so let's continue. And of course, serpent is the term that Yahshua uses when describing the Jews and the Pharisees. So the serpent is a literal and figurative term. And both the literal and figurative terms can be applied to Jews who are a den of vipers. A den of vipers, literal snakes, because they act like snakes, okay? And she said, ye shall not surely die. So that is the first lie. Genesis 3, 5, for God, Elohim, he doesn't say Yahweh. He doesn't uh, address Yahweh. Elohim is a more ambiguous term than Yahweh because there's a, a one, Yahweh is the one and only. And Yahweh didn't say any such thing. But Elohim, he is actually an Elohim. He is a fallen angel. He is a Ben Elohim. He is a son of God. He was created by Yahweh, but he rejected Yahweh, and that's why he fell. For Elohim doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Okay? 
In other words, what he's saying, ye shall be like one of us, a lesser God. Ye shall be like one of us, a lesser God, knowing good and evil. The implication is very clear that they did not yet know, Adam and Eve did not yet know the difference between good and evil because Yahweh's spirit was breathed into Adam and uh, given to Eve in Genesis 2, 7. There's no way Yahweh is going to breathe evil or evil ideas into the minds of Adam and Eve. There's no way he's going to do that. So he used the serpent to do that. Okay? All of this stuff had to happen, folks, because we do have to know the difference between good and evil in order to reject evil. And that's what the rest of the Bible is all about, how well we are able to reject evil or to succumb to it. That's what the Bible is really about, in addition to the two seed lines. How we react to the teachings of Yahweh. Okay, let's continue, which is his law. And of course, the Jews do not obey his law. They obey their father, the devil, also known as Satan, etc. Okay, so the word... Okay, and then B is, ye shall not eat of it, the tree that is in the midst of the garden, or scattered throughout the garden, is another possible translation, or simply within the garden. It does not necessarily point to a particular place. So if you imagine a, a flat garden <laughs> or a flat earth, that right in the middle of the flat earth, like uh, the, the polar the polar circumference, and at the very center would be the North Pole. No, it's not suggesting that it's at the very center. It's suggesting that there are many of these creatures running around, okay? That they're within the garden or within the garden and not necessarily in the dead center, okay? So to eat a cow has sexual connotations. It does mean to devour, it is used not only of men, but also of beasts, 11, Isaiah 11, 7, to enjoy anything as good fortune. So there's a metaphorical definition of the word eat. Yeah, we'd like to eat good fortune. <laughs> I wouldn't spit that out. The fruit of good and evil actions, sexual pleasures, Proverbs 30, 20, to eat has sexual connotations, also to lay with. Proverbs 30, 20, such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Hmm. She wipeth her mouth. Okay. Uh, I guess that you can consider that a form of eating, right? It's very prevalent today. Not so much in Old Testament times, at least among the Israelites. See, neither shall ye touch it. The word touch also has sexual connotations. Touch, naga. Don't you know that in India, the fallen angels are referred to as the naga. Don't touch those naga critters. Nakash, naga. How about anakim? Fallen angels, anakim. So that root, naga, is very prevalent in Scripture. 
Many words can be derived from it. But the word touch has sexual connotations, euphemistically to lie with a woman, which is what it clearly means here, because there is no other type of fruit that uh, you can't touch are forbidden to touch. You have to, all the other fruit. You have to touch it in order to eat it. So he's saying, I, I'm not even supposed to touch the fruit that you're suggesting that I touch, Mr. Nakash. And part D of the verse, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now wait a minute. They didn't know that they were naked until they engaged in this forbidden act of sexual intercourse. And what does nakedness have to do with eating apples, oranges, and pomegranates? Nothing, I would say. Oh, here's another clue that this eating is of an entirely different kind of the, the type of stuff you eat at the dinner table. All right, and, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The word apron is chagor, Hebrew 2290, a belt for the waist. Not a face apron, otherwise known as a COVID uh, face face diaper, as we like to call it. It's not a face diaper. It's not a face mask, nor does it have anything to do with the mind. It is a literal piece of cloth. And it doesn't cover your head like a dunce cap, which, of course, Ted Wyland is famous for saying, Oh, the, the sin that Adam and Eve committed was a mental sin only. However, there's a problem with that suggestion because nowhere in Yahweh's law is there ever a thought crime. The idea of a thought crime is totally Jewish. That's totally Jewish. Our law does not prosecute people for thoughts. You actually have to commit crime, a physical act, in order for it to be punishable in the Old Testament and in Anglo-Saxon law. Okay, thought crimes never enter the picture. And I know in uh, Matthew 5, Yahshua says, if you lust after another woman or a forbidden woman, you have committed adultery in your heart, but there is no punishment prescribed for that. It's a warning. It's like when the cop stops you and you're speeding. And, oh, don't you even think about speeding again. But he lets you off. No punishment. Okay? We do not publish punish people for their thoughts. Okay? However, you better be careful what you think because eventually, if you think about it too much, you will perform the dirty deed. Okay? So, the apron covered their private parts from the waist with a belt to the groin or girdle, not their mouths. If they were ashamed from eating a piece of fruit, such as an apple, they would have covered their mouths. Yes, they would have used a face diaper instead of a loincloth. Okay, number uh, verse 13, And Yahweh Elohim said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? Done is Hebrew 62.13. Had it been a mental crime, 
the question would have been, what is this that thou hast thought? The word done in both Strong's and Jesenius's uh, concordances has nothing to do with anything mental, but everything to do with to produce or create. Oh, it's not mental? Sorry, Ted Wyland, it's not mental. In fact, Gesenius includes a definition with the sexual connotation, and I quote, Peel, P-I-E-L, to work or to press immodestly the breasts of a woman. Not just to think about it, but to do it. Also, Ezekiel 23, 3 and 8, and in K-A-L, I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to look up the, these words, peel and cal. Uh, it's Ezekiel 23, verse 21. So uh, it, it talks about the Greek and Latin, and an, as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Okay, and F, and the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So the word done requires a physical action, not merely thinking about it. That's the point of bringing that up. Beguiled also has sexual connotations. Beguiled is NASA. <laughs> Spelled N-A-S-A. <laughs> All you conspiratologists, you can have a field day with that one. And that's Hebrew 5377. Hifil, to seduce to corrupt, as seen in Genesis 3.13, Jeremiah 49.16, beguiled as exopateo in the Greek, that's Greek 18.18, to seduce holy, as used in 2 Corinthians 11.3. To seduce holy. That would have to include the act of sexual intercourse because that would be only partially, right? That would only be a partial seduction. A complete seduction or a whole seduction is, as the euphemism stands in English, going all the way. And, next item, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed or thy progeny, and her progeny, which already proves that the, 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 the Nakash had progeny. How can you not, how can you not understand this? Nakash has progeny, offspring, children, Jews on his side. It, that is, thy seed and her seed, now referring to her seed, it, that is her seed, her offspring, her progeny, shall bruise thy head. And we have bruised the head of the serpent on multiple occasions in our various wars against the Jews and the Nachash critters, the Canaanites and Edomites and Kenites, because we had many wars with them. And we bruised them when we invaded Canaan land. Bruised their head. Unfortunately, we allowed them to live, even though we were commanded to exterminate them to the last, even to the last child. But our people don't have the heart or stomach for killing children, not like the Jews do in Gaza. 
If you've seen the movies of all the dead children, dead defenseless children, of course, in Gaza, the Jews are simply proving that they're the children of the devil. So, folks, this language is very, very specific that Nachash has progeny. It's not make-believe that he has progeny. It says it right here. And thou shalt bruise his. His is a bad translation because according to Cruden's concordance, when the 1611 version came into being, the word its, even though it has it in the first part of the uh, paragraph, or actually sentence, which is a neuter pronoun signifying both the male and female offspring of Eve, the male and female offspring of Eve, and thou, Nachash, shall bruise his heel. It should have been its instead of his. Now, this is another instance of bad translation in the King James because it has engendered this false teaching of the Proto-Evangelion, as the Judeo-theologians call it, which is that this verse does not talk about um, the entire bloodline of Eve, but only Yahshua, or Jesus Christ. No, the Jesus Christ could not have been born unless all the 77 generations from Yahweh until him were extant, historically living people. He does not emerge out of the mist or evaporate, or what's the word, uh, precipitate out of the ether. He's the end of this bloodline, at least in Judea. But his bloodline still exists in us. Okay? And so there was way more than his mere heel being injured, bruised. Because this is not talking about him it's talking about us, because wherever we go, the Jews, like snakes in the grass, have been biting at our heels. Is this a valid metaphor for how the Jews follow us around wherever we go? I think so, folks. The non liners have not considered... Now, this they don't consider as a metaphor, right? <laughs> what do they consider literally? Well, they, when they don't like the literal interpretation, they make up a metaphor. And when the metaphor doesn't fit their philosophy, then they take it literally. So this is the, the kind of intellectual uh, sparring that goes on between the seed liners and the non-seed liners. Okay? And this is very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff because you can see them dodging our bullets dodging our bullets but you know we can see that there's metaphorical definitions and literal definitions but we have to get it right we have to get the metaphors right and we have to get the literal passages right and as i've been telling you that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil cannot possibly be a literal tree or at least made of wood the word tree refers to bloodlines and lines of descent and the DNA of very all species, really. Wheat, oats, barley, grapes, people, Israelites. That's what that word represents. It doesn't just 
And of course, there are numerous metaphorical uses of the word tree in scripture, like uh, Assyria is uh, described as a huge tree, an expansive tree. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people living in Assyria, right? Assyria was a multicultural empire that conquered many peoples and dragged them into Assyria and forced them to live there in bondage. So, yeah, it was a huge tree, a multicultural tree. And Yahshua says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Now, is that a grub? <laughs> is that, a, is that a, a piece of vegetable that's buried under the ground? I don't think he's referring to himself as a vegetable. I think he's referring to himself as the, well, for lack of a better expression, the ground, the origin of the Jacob tree, the Jacob Israel tree. Of course, David was a part of that literal human Israelite tree. Okay? So, again, so we concede that there are metaphorical and literal usage of all these trees. However, you must get it right. You must get it right and derive the meaning therefrom. So I think Yahweh in his wisdom uh, gave to the non-seed letters a, ma- a mind that does not comprehend. And even though they're Israelites. Okay? There's a lot of things the non-seed letters don't agree with us about. That's okay. We're having a friendly competition here. Although, in my experience... The non-seedlanders have never accepted an offer to debate to, to debate, me, debate me on the two seed line issue. They uh, and even Ted Wyland, I've I've challenged him to debate me about these things numerous times. He was always declined because he knows that uh, I, I would roll him down the <laughs> down the apple field right, <laughs> right into a tree. Okay, he knows that. He knows that he's preaching nonsense. But let me continue. And what's this enmity? It's hatred. It's a feud. A blood feud. It's not just metaphorical hatred. Do the Jews hate us or not? And David said we should have a perfect hatred against these enemies of our people. The problem is, non-seedliners included, our people don't understand what the Jews really are. They have the descendants of Cain. That's what they are. The Bible is very clear about them being descended. Because in Matthew chapter 23, the last few verses of that chapter, Yahshua makes no bones about it. He says, ye, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you are a generation of vipers. And a generation there comes from Genema which is not a period of time, which is literal, uh, a literal people, <laughs> okay? Genema means literal people, and therefore you are the children, the offspring of Cain, and you are guilty of the murder of all the prophets from Cain down to Zechariah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar, now, either Yahshua is a liar and accused these Pharisees standing in front of him of murdering Abel, which they weren't even around then, 
or he is addressing their entire bloodline. Which do you think? So either he's a liar, or he's telling the truth about the entire bloodline of Cain. Okay? I mean, all this makes perfect sense to me. I'm hoping it's making sense to you. So, and uh, this enmity is proof. And the, the language is proof that there are literal offspring from Cain through Eve, or, or from Nachash, through Eve begetting Cain, and from Nachash, uh, without, and not, not Nachash, but Adam and Eve begetting Seth, who was created in Adam's likeness. In Adam's likeness, that's in Genesis chapter 5. Nothing of the kind is said about Cain, who must have looked pretty much like a modern-day Jew or a historical Jew. And, of course, the word seed has sexual connotations, which is zera, Hebrew word 2232. Seed, figuratively, fruit, plant, sowing time, posterity, offspring, carnally, a child or children, fruitful, seed time, Sowing time. So, human offspring are mentioned. Of course, that's what Zara is. It means human offspring. Not just figuratively, but literally, because it says here, carnally. Posterity. Yahweh did not put Cain to death because the enmity prophecy had to be fulfilled. Yahweh did not put the serpent to death because he only tricked Eve and did not murder her. Well, he seduced her. He seduced her, and that resulted in Cain. However, the prophecy still had to be fulfilled, that there had to be two bloodlines. Now, I firmly believe that the fallen angels were were probably propagating with other humanoid women on the earth. There's nothing to rule that out. But we're talking about the two bloodlines that emerged from Eve's womb. Now, if there weren't two bloodlines emerging from her womb, then what is this enmity about? What is this hatred? This blood feud? That is in obviously Genesis 3.15. Okay. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception... In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Now what does eating an apple have to do with conception? Unless there are apples out there that, are, that I'm not familiar with and can get, that can get a woman pregnant. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Right, why, why sorrow? Because Adam and Eve knew what they had done, that they shouldn't have done it. But they did it anyway. How many of you out there have done something that you knew you shouldn't do, but you did it anyway, and that created a lot of sorrow? And believe me, there's a lot of sorry Israelites in this world, not to mention sorry Jews, but all Jews are sorry because they have the blood of Cain in them, not the blood of Nachash in them. And, of course, conception is, of course, a sexual term outright, Herion meaning pregnancy slash conception. So you see all the terms that are available here in Genesis chapter 3? 
that all have to do with sexuality and offspring. Yet Ted Weiland and, and the rest of the non-seedliners simply ignore all this language and say, oh no, it was just a, a bad thought that Eve had. I'm sorry, that is whitewashing Genesis chapter 3. A total whitewash of Genesis chapter 3. Yahweh said he was going to multiply Eve's conception, pregnancy, and in fact she had twins due to a continuing in labor and bearing Abel after bearing Cain. Now, this is interesting, because remember we did a show a few weeks ago about telegony. So, if Eve were pregnant with Cain before being pregnant with Abel, then Abel would have been a tainted offspring via telegony, because Nahash's sperm and DNA would have still been floating around in Eve's womb. And, of course, telegony proves that that happens. Now, the extent to which this might have happened at Abel is debatable. But if Abel were produced, were uh, conceived first, and then Cain, then uh, it would be less likely so, because his, uh, his body, his fetus, would have been forming already before Cain's fetus. So the question of telegony does become involved here, but only to the extent that how much of Nakash's DNA would have affected the body of Abel. But it's actually a moot point because Abel did not live to demonstrate any of those negative qualities. So, now let's get into Genesis 4.1. How much time we have? 15 minutes. And it says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Now it's interesting that... If Cain were delivered first, then he must have been somewhat older. Not necessarily, but typically, if you give them both exactly nine months, then Cain was born first and said, I have gotten an ish, which does not mean Adamite. It simply means a male of whatever species. That's what the Hebrew word ish means from Yahweh. She did not say she had gotten an Adamite from Adam. She did not say she got a man from Adam. She was hoping that, okay, now let's assume that this Nachash critter was indeed a fallen angel or a Ben Elohim, a, you know, a product of that, that is a, uh, not necessarily a giant, because no, not all of the fallen angels begat giants. There were, there were little Jews <laughs> all over the world this time, too. It's just the, the giant ones made the biggest impression on people. Okay? So, she did not say she had gotten a man from Adam. Ish is Hebrew word number 376. I have gotten an ish. The word man is not translated from the Hebrew word for Adam, which means to show blood in the face. So there had to be something different about Cain when she first beheld him. And I know that Bertrand Comparé says it was that big old Jewish nose, but may not have been, and I think that's, that's too easy. That's too easy. What is the mark of Cain? It is translated from the Hebrew word ish, which has a distinctly different meaning. Ish simply denotes maleness. 
Eve would have used the word Adam if, looking upon Cain, he actually resembled Adam. If Cain were Adam's son, she would have called him an Adam. The reason she chose, oh, giving him the distinction of one who shows blood in the face. It is quite probable that the reason she chose the word Ish was because Cain did not show blood in the face, as Seth did, because Seth is said to have been born in the likeness of Adam, and that phrase is not used of Cain. It's not used of Cain. So we have all these differences which the non-seedliners completely ignore. Oh, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything that uh, Cain did not resemble his father. Remember, we go by the patrilineal line, not the matrilineal line like the Jews do. Okay? So they don't care what Seth looked like. <laughs> All they know is that their daddy, Nakash, had sex with a white woman named Eve, and they are the offspring. So they, not, they dare not worship Yahweh, and they dare not worship Adam. As many post-Adamites did, ancestor worship, that's a lot of where a lot of uh, our paganism comes from is ancestor worship, and all of our ancestors were Adamic white people. So our ancestor worship is regarding white people, not any other race. And so we see here that you cannot simply gloss over these verses, these biblical facts, and pretend they don't mean anything. Okay. So, continuing with the word ish. Eve would have used the word Adam if, looking upon Cain, he actually resembled Adam. If Cain were Adam's son, she would have called him an Adam, giving him the distinction of one who shows blood in the face. It is quite probable that the reason she chose the word ish was because Cain did not show blood in the face or did not resemble Adam, as Seth did. Okay. And she again bare his brother Abel, the verse continues, Again, Yasap, Hebrew word 876, to add or augment, to continue to do a thing. To me, this says that they were twins, fraternal twins, in the same womb, because it is most certainly possible, and even today it's fairly common, for a woman to conceive children by two different men, or even more, unfortunately, that's the way things are, in the world today, thanks to Jewish degeneracy and pornography, etc., that a woman can have two children be pregnant at the same time by two different men, even of two different races. Telegony is engaged here as well, because if you have two different boys in the same womb and the DNA of both sires is floating around in her womb, the potential for contamination is evident, okay? All right, so Cain and Abel were fraternal twins from two different fathers because he is so different. In fact, one of the questions the seed liners, non-seed liners ask is, well, how is it possible for Cain to be so different from Abel? Well, there can't be a genetic explanation. There has to be, uh, it must be the mind, the mentality. You know, our Jews Genetically different from us? They sure are. They can't be saved. 
The Bible clearly says the Edomites will be wiped out and be as though they had never been. And yet the Judeo-Christians are trying to convert Jews to our religion constantly. What a waste of time. That's like preaching to the devil. All he does is snicker. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That is the genealogy. Fact. Cain is not found in Adam's genealogy, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament. Hint, hint, hint. Are you getting the hint? Cain is given a completely separate and distinct genealogy from that of Seth. Cain is not counted in this genealogy either. The descendants of Cain became the very Kenite, Canaanite, Edomite, Pharisee, Jewish line of descent. This is the very line of descent which has been at enmity with the seed line of Adam and Eve since Genesis 3.15. Or do you deny that there has been such enmity from the very beginning? From the birth of Adam and Eve, or you could even say from the day that Cain killed Abel. Because that was the physical expression of that enmity. Now, why did Yahweh not judge Cain immediately? The only thing I can think of there is that there was no other witness. Because the law says you have to be two or more witnesses to testify against somebody. And the only witness was Yahweh. Now, he could have, he could have crushed Cain if he wanted to. But that begs the question, if, if Yahweh engendered another Adamic species, would not the same thing have happened to us? Do we not have to go through all the pain and anguish, the tribulation, the fires of refinement to understand why we're here? We're here to destroy evil. Therefore, we have to know the difference between good and evil and not just be like the three monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil. <laughs> what was the other? Hear no, think no evil, I guess. Mental. And no, it's way more than that. We have to recognize evil for what it is, what its source is, and act accordingly. The vast majority of an evil of the world, it comes from the perfidious Canaanites, otherwise known as Jews in the modern world. Okay. So, and that's. That's the story of Genesis 3.15. The enmity between these two bloodlines, which are clearly stated, and Eve's womb was cursed with various forms of uh, punishment. And it wasn't her head, and it wasn't her mouth that was punished. It was her womb with uh, painful conception and childbirth and probably, uh, well, conception, I think, covers the whole gamut from you know the, the moment the, the the fetus the egg is fertilized and develops into a baby okay oh, that's covered by the word conception and birth is the delivery of the baby so with all of the sexual connotations in these various words in Genesis 3:15 i don't think you can you know dismiss the sexual connotations of all of these words, which there's at least 10 words that we've talked about here, that all have sexual connotations. 
that you simply can dismiss all of this and say, oh, no, it was just a mental sin. I'm sorry, folks. As I said earlier, we do not punish thought crimes, nor does Yahweh punish thought crimes. Only the Jews punish thought crimes. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.